These are the oldest stories. Online at oldeststories.net. Now, I honestly didn't expect a full episode to get eaten up by a discussion of the etymology of the word Hebrew, but it did, and now we're back at Numbers chapter 2. Having seen that Numbers chapter 1 is just an absolute mess. Actually, Numbers chapter 2 is essentially the same mess, and the chapters immediately after involve the construction of the tabernacle and the Levites and various ritual matters largely unrelated to history. Finally, though, they're guided by a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire to begin their wilderness wanderings. And the very first thing that the people do, having been given a mix of blessings and laws, is complain. Now, this has fascinated many people, that the Jews of Israel complain almost ceaselessly as they travel. Historically, I'm not sure what to make of it. We're obviously not going to find archaeological traces of whining anywhere, but I can't help but wonder if our writers are here indicating that at this point in the process, there's a large portion, perhaps a majority, of the tribes in the people of Israel who are not on board with the theological mission being advanced by the Yahwist priesthood class. Perhaps they don't see a need to abandon their long-held polytheist philosophies. Perhaps they don't want to actively reject the societies around them and instead work to integrate like so many other groups that they see going on at the same time. Either of these suggests that, like most Habiru, they are not entering into their status completely willingly, even if the priestly class may be happy about it for theological reasons. The many miracles of numbers, like the great miracles of earlier books, are beyond history. We won't dig up any manna because it explicitly says that it vanished at the end of each day. It is unquestionable that an all-powerful God is at least capable, my definition of all these miracles, and it's unquestionable that a non-existent God is incapable of the same. We have no tool but theology to probe this particular section. And note here that if you, even if you think there was no exodus from Egypt, historically it is extremely likely that the ancestors of the later kingdom of Israel did in fact spend time in the wilderness, so to speak. Linguistically, we have a number of cues, such as the large number of words for specialized tent tools compared to words related to settled life. There is as well the whole Habiru thing, which pretty much necessitates a wandering period. Historically, it's far from unusual for the settled populations of Iron Age Canaan to have previously been wanderers. And in fact, it would be more unusual if they had always been there, but never left any evidence in the earlier ages. And we should not discount the fact that the one thing the Israelites seem to believe, perhaps more firmly than just about anything else, is that they had been in bondage over in Egypt and escaped into the wilderness prior to settling in Canaan. This basic narrative is repeated over and over again throughout Scripture, and at a certain level, it would be odd for them to believe this of themselves if they had not in fact spent any time in the wilderness while somehow opposed to various Egyptians. There exists among skeptics 
an idea that the Israelite people emerged pretty much in place, as if formed from the dirt itself on the banks of the Jordan River. Now, we'll look at that more in a bit, but I want to emphasize that even if the Israelites are in fact from Canaan along the Jordan, none of that precludes them from A, escaping from Egypt, which was in fact a major power in Canaan for a few centuries, and B, wandering in the wilderness prior to the withdrawal of Egypt from Canaan. Anyway, merely establishing that they did in fact wander at some point allows us to at least suggest that all these pages and pages and pages and pages of laws and regulations may have had some kind of origin in that wilderness period. Now, we can't say for sure they could have all been invented much later, though it would be odd to invent the tabernacle rules during the temple period after the tabernacle was obsolete, but it is suggestive of an early framework for what would later become the laws of Moses. Next in our narrative is the Twelve Spies. Now, if this is literally nothing more than 12 guys wandering in and looking around, bringing back some grapes, then it's beyond history. But some people think that this may be a metaphor for or a cultural memory of a season of raiding into southern Egyptian-occupied Canaan, destroying a few southern cities at the north edge of the Negev. And, well... There is some archaeological evidence of destruction at the tail end of the Late Bronze Age, a bit prior to the Bronze Age collapse. Now, of course, that destruction could be explained by any number of other enemies just now starting to encroach on Canaan, but this being the first destructive foray of Israel into Canaan, it is a possibility being explored by some in recent times. But of course, the spies do get discouraged, which could mean their raid is beaten back, or could who knows what it could mean, because at this point, early Canaan is still strong and reinforced with Egyptian garrisons, especially at the south end. We even know the size of some of these garrisons. For example, the one in Jerusalem is a few dozen men. And the governor of Jerusalem during the Amarna period was begging the pharaoh to send an additional 20 to 40 soldiers, just in case we needed any more reinforcement that the idea of 600,000 men of fighting age back in Numbers chapter 1 is completely absurd. There's no city in Canaan garrisoned with more than 2,000 men that we know of, and vanishingly few with more than a low few hundred. And this was the military force that scared away the spies during the height of Egyptian control in Canaan. And so the people decide to go back into the wilderness and keep wandering for a while until, let's see if Canaan gets a little weaker. Of course, in our story, this makes God angry and becomes the cause of some rebellion, as well as an occasion to offer more laws, all of which are, our favorite word now, beyond history. I guess that's two words. Anyway, they then run up against Edomite territory and ask to pass through. 
Edom was a real country in this period, attested to independently as a minor power out in the desert, though little is known about it specifically. The fact that Edom has a large enough army to scare away the Israelites is more confirmation, if any was needed, that Israel doesn't actually have a 600,000-man army in those tents. But of course, a war between a nomadic, unsettled people and a half-settled, poorly attested nation way out in the desert, if there was a war at all and not just a bit of posturing before Israel backed down, is beyond history, though entirely plausible. Then, in all of three verses in chapter 21, the people of Israel experience their first encounter, which would leave unquestionable archaeological evidence. The passage reads, When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And Yahweh heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them in their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. The town of Arad, now called Tel Arad, not far from the modern-day city of Arad, but a, a little bit different apparently, has been extensively studied and confirmed to have once been a Canaanite city. And then, during the kingdom period, an Israelite city. And here, in microcosm, we can see all the difficulties of biblical archaeology. You see, initial excavations revealed that the town was indeed abandoned, possibly destroyed, but that a major destruction layer occurred in the early Bronze Age, some 800 years too early for any sort of exodus or conquest period. Indeed, earlier even than the Israelites were in Egypt in the earliest timelines. And we don't have firm evidence of human habitation returning to Arad until perhaps about 950-ish BCE, well into the kingdom of Judah as a separate entity. Once again, a key historical witness of biblical events slots itself conveniently into a place that is hard to see. The fundamental problem is that a fortress was built during the times of the kings of Judah on this site, and then built over again during the Hellenic period, which destroyed most of what was underneath during the time we're interested in, the decades around 1200 BCE. Now, some excavations have found pots and building traces which may have been from that century, while other excavators judge the same traces to be 200 years later. Similarly, a religious site was found there from the early periods, but very little of it survives, little enough that excavators cannot even agree if it was a square or rectangle originally, a detail that would be important if determining if it matched Israelite or Canaanite patterns of temples seen elsewhere. But what we can say of Tel Arad is that both the most enthusiastically biblical reconstructions, which name specific biblical people from Judges chapter 1, 
have no specific evidence, and indeed are a bit of scripture twisting, since the text itself merely says that certain families colonized the land south of Arad, not the town of Arad itself. But then on the other hand, because there's no strong evidence for a full city during the late Bronze Age, You'll hear it claimed that Numbers 21 is just more impossible nonsense, the idea being that if it wasn't an established, fully settled community, then it must have been completely empty. However, despite what the video game Civilization teaches us, cities exist in more states than merely flourishing or destroyed. The site of Arad was settled initially because it turns out it has a reliable water well, built in the early Bronze Age and could support agriculture, and it lay, of course, on a trade route between Canaan and Egypt. With the climate shift into the Middle and Late Bronze Age, the site could no longer support agriculture, which was why, when the city was destroyed in who knows what war, it was never permanently resettled. However, the site itself still had a good source of water, and it was still on the trade route. So what happened for the intervening 800 years was likely to similar to what we find in many similar sites on the edge of the desert. The people of the town, or maybe just some other people moving in, became semi-nomadic, following their animal herds and returning to the town for a portion of the year each year. Now, it's likely that they were growing crops there, not enough to be a main source of nutrition, but enough to supplement the diet. And it is possible that they were worshipping Canaanite gods at this site, either in the ruins of the old temple or just at a makeshift altar that's now lost. And though to our modern eyes the closest parallel is more like squatters in a post-apocalyptic ruin, this pastoralist lifestyle was pretty common throughout the Near East. They move regularly, but in a pretty well-defined circuit, and the people who occupied the ruins of Arad, even if only for part of the year, would be seen, probably if there wasn't other weird stuff going on, as the city's rulers. Now, there's going to be more stories to reinforce this general idea, but what most non-experts need when evaluating this period of biblical history, either skeptically or faithfully, is a much clearer sense of the scale of the communities involved. There may have been no more than a few families at Arad when Israel attacked. There couldn't have been more than 150 people here. We would have seen that. And yet there still would have been, even without that, a large enough community to merit a mention as a notable battle, large enough to maybe raid the Israelite camp, and large enough for Israelite vengeance to merit a mention. And then, the site may have been ritually ruined, yet because the settlement itself was light and impermanent, there wouldn't be much for archaeology to find. Perhaps the light, scattered destruction layers really are datable to the Wilderness Era, approximately 1200 BCE. That would fit with the story, and it is argued by some archaeologists. On the other hand, perhaps those same destruction layers are from a later period. That still doesn't invalidate the idea that there was a battle there, given the small, impermanent nature of settlement in places like Arad, 
during these sorts of climactic conditions, such as what they had literally right there prior to the Iron Age. Anyway, this is all of three lines, and it seems quite plausible under pretty much any reading of history as something that could have happened. Ah, there's a town. They've raided us. We're going to go smash their town up. Yeah, problem solved. Following this brief mention, we get the miracle of the Bronze Serpent, which again occurs outside of history, and then we get to a little discussion of the Ammonites, Moabites, and Amorites, and some fun little wars. All these three were real desert nations, independently attested to outside the Bible, and it's pretty much 100% guaranteed that any other tribes, be they Israel, non-Israel Habiru, or just any sort of passing nomad, would engage in either diplomacy or violence, or both, against these nations if they happened to be in the same area. I mean, you're either talking to them or you're fighting them, or you're doing both because they don't like it when you come in their territory. That's just what happens. But amidst mention of these conflicts, it quotes a passage from the Book of the Wars of Yahweh. Now, this is our only mention of this book, but like the other brief mentions of various chronicles in the Old Testament, which are now lost to us, we can pretty reasonably assume that this text does exactly what it says on the tin, describes certain wars of God. While there isn't much more we could say about it, the fact that it's being quoted at all reminds us that whoever was redacting the books of Moses was unquestionably working off some much earlier, now lost source. Of course, it also tells us that Moses himself didn't write every word, since he doesn't have access to some later historical account, and reminds us that we're so far away from the original that it's hard for us to tell where one source ends and another begins, despite the valiant and often contradictory efforts of modern literary critics. Also, every time we hear in our sources about some other source which no longer exists, every antiquarian sheds a single tear. Anyway, all the stuff about wars is really just getting us set up for Balaam, son of Baor. Now, his story is great. It's one of my favorites. And this is where we get the talking donkey that many people have heard of, but don't know the context for. More important than whether Balaam's donkey talked like a Disney animal is the fact that Balaam, a Syrian man, worshipped Yahweh. And this is an important background detail that many people miss. The Bible seems to believe that there are a number of people outside of the line of Israel who, for unexplained reasons, worship Yahweh. Melchizedek is a priest of Yahweh, so presumably he's got like a congregation, or, you know, they didn't have congregations necessarily, but maybe a bunch of worshippers that came to his uh, ritual place. I don't know if he had a temple. Who knows? And the presumably Zoroastrian Magi are well-versed enough in messianic expectation to follow a star that even the Jews themselves didn't recognize as a sign of the coming of Jesus. And then Balaam is just some guy who happens to be a prophet of Yahweh out in Syria. Now, some preachers emphasize that he's terrible at following God, so he doesn't really count. But really... A guy who tries to pervert prophecy for the sake of money 
Is that something that doesn't exist nowadays or throughout history? But we still call them Christian or Jewish or Muslim or whatever they happen to be. If the Balaam story is fictional, or the aspects relating to his religion are, then it still shows that the ancient Israelites looked out into the world and saw at least a scattered few others who worshipped their same god. If at least the part about there being a non-Israelite Syrian prophet or worshipper of Yahweh in this period is true, then it stands as evidence that the worship of Yahweh was indeed active in the Near East at this time, not just something invented by much later peoples. Indeed, Balaam seems to be at least henotheistic, possibly polytheistic, and no great friend of Israel, which suggests that what we're seeing from other quarters, that this time in the wilderness has altered the faith of Israel, they're worshipping the same God, but in a categorically different way from the other faiths of the Near East in general. Now, one of the most interesting things about Balaam, and I only learned this kind of recently, been a big fan of this story for a long time, but I'd never heard about this until kind of recently, he has an extra-biblical reference. In a text found in Dir Allah in western Jordan, there is a story about a certain Balaam, son of Beor, receiving a prophecy. Now, no mention is made here of his Israelite adventure, but rather he receives word from the high Canaanite gods that El, the top god of Canaan, is planning some sort of darkness and destruction. Now, much of the text is badly damaged. I'd really love to read it for you, but there's not much to go on. But with the help of a god called Shagar and another one called Ishtar, who we've heard of, Balaam is apparently able to foil the plot and save the world, or something to that effect. He has some sort of positive outcome. We assume the world wasn't destroyed, because it's still here. For a skeptical interpreter, this tablet could confirm that Balaam was a well-known mythical figure, being brought in like a Marvel movie crossover for popular effect. For a faithful interpreter, this is proof that Balaam existed, was famous enough to command the attention of a king, and a really bad worshipper of Yahweh. Or, I mean, it's he's talking to El in the prophecy. El is also the name of the god in uh, Hebrew worship. I mean, who knows what's going on? Uh, he could just be a really bad worshipper of Yahweh. He could be a splitter. I mean, he gets bad-mouthed pretty, pretty frequently in other parts of the Bible. And of course, we all know we, uh, we bad-mouth the heretics more than we do the complete infidels. Anyway, for me, it points to Yahweh worship being at least somewhat known among polytheists, who saw him as one among many gods, much as the Israelites themselves would do frequently later on when they're not being chastened by the various prophets. I mean, that's what they're going to be chastened for. Anyway, after Balaam's story, there's another census of Israel. Decades have passed since the last one, and the numbers are different, but they're essentially the same. I mean, the, the specifics of the numbers are about the same, but we end up with the same total approximately. 
These numbers have the exact same problem that the earlier ones had. They're vastly out of proportion with what we know about populations in the Near East at this time. 600,000 fighting men would be enough to overwhelm any contemporary nation with sheer bodies, even if they just marched forward like zombies. And the estimated total population of maybe 2 million was well beyond the carrying capacity of the land. Canaan has, depending on what estimate you look at, maybe a quarter of a million people in the entire area at the close of the Late Bronze Age. And then you get the Bronze Age collapse, which did see a bunch of in-migration, but also a bunch of famine and warfare. So the total human population in Israel, as the Israelites are counting, is less than what Numbers claims for just the fighting age men of Israel. Now then they talk about laws for a few more chapters, then they fight the Midianites, and when they win, they write out a list of spoils like the other Near Eastern kings do. And note that there are only 32,000 captives. Now let's take that number as literal for a moment. The number of captives is usually far greater than the number of fighting men, since it includes both the men who surrendered and many of the people in the area, just the civilians who didn't fight. Moses' army, despite having 600,000 men, is for some reason only 12,000 men, a number which is entirely reasonable, for a coalition of tribes fighting a single massive campaign against a large neighbor, and there's reason to think that even these numbers are inflated. But even if they aren't, we can see that the biblical author doesn't actually believe what he's writing about the censuses, or somewhere in the uh, grand chain of transmission, someone's lost the plot. Anyway, now after the Midianites Yet still before the entry into Israel, some of the settled tribes on the east side of the Jordan River uh, settled down. Now this gets us into our, the main archaeological thrust of our evidence. You see, we're pretty much done with history now until the book of Joshua. There are some interesting geographical notes, which you can be sure are heavily studied by all sides to compare against what we know. But the story now is that some of the tribes settle just outside of the Promised Land, creating many small villages while the rest remain in their tribal coalition, following the cloud and pillar of fire. Then when the moment is right, all 12 tribes under the leadership of Joshua parade into Canaan proper and start conquering something which, according to the popular understanding of the biblical account, radically reshapes the land and transforms it from a land held by wicked Canaanites to a land held by a very different and far more virtuous sort of person. Except, this isn't actually what we see in the archaeology. And actually, that isn't what we see in the Bible either for all that there are a million books nowadays wrestling with the moral problems of a Canaanite genocide that the Bible is clear never actually happened. We probably won't get into the latter issue today. We'll follow the play-by-play -play of Joshua a little bit more closely next episode. And instead, we're going to look at the archaeological foundations of how we can know whether or not the conquests actually happened at all. You see, the book of Joshua is special for a lot of reasons, not least because 
Finally, as they burst into Canaan, the people of Israel should also be bursting into history, clearly and unambiguously. They are finally in a literate, settled land where we have pretty detailed histories in the first few centuries. Beyond just history, it's likely that no other patch on earth has as many archaeologists per square meter as modern-day Israel. And so you'd think that the problem would be a surplus of materials from which to sort through. But of course, it should be no surprise to most listeners that this is not what we find. It isn't that evidence of Joshua himself is lacking. It's that pretty much all of Canaan, much like much of the wider Near East, is deeply obscure from the year about 1200 to 1000 BCE. From Canaan itself, we have only one written source from all of these two centuries. And it's a pot shard that has the Canaanite alphabet written on it, presumably by some student learning to write. And the form of the alphabet, since we have so little to compare it to, is heavily debated. Some will proclaim it as the first early Hebrew language writing. Some think it's Phoenician or Canaanite, and if it's any of those, all three are basically dialects of each other at any point in this early phase, and some even think it's Philistine writing. Whatever writing system it was intended to be by that one forgotten student 3,000 years ago, it's just an alphabet, or more technically what they call an ABCery. By itself, it can tell us nothing except the fact that literacy existed during this period and not everyone was dead. But then over in Egypt, we have one of the most remarkable finds in early Israelite history. Called the Merneptah Stila, the Pharaoh Merneptah went conquering various places during his career, and some of those battles took place over in the region of Canaan. Sometime between 1208 and 1203 BCE, a lot of the time they call it 1207, um, the Pharaoh's scribes wrote down the following lines about his activity in Canaan. The princes are prostrate, saying peace. Not one is raising his head among the nine bows, the traditional enemies of Egypt. Now that Libya has come to ruin, Hatti is pacified, the Canaan has been plundered into every sort of woe, Ashkelon has been overcome, Gezer has been captured, Yanoam is made non-existent, Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. Peru has become a widow because of Egypt. So this is all pretty standard stuff. The beginning of this steal is about 25 lines talking about how great Merneptah's campaign in Libya was, uh, which we don't really care about. And once he finishes talking about that, he appears to sort of summarize a bunch of other things related to the geopolitical situation that the pharaoh found himself in. Note that not all of this necessarily has anything to do with the Pharaoh. Maybe. Libya has certainly been destroyed by the armies of Egypt. That's what most of the inscription's about. But at this point, in the waning years of the Hittite Empire, we don't actually have any evidence that Merneptah actually attacked the Hittites. 
Uh, as far as we know, they stayed at peace until the collapse of the Hittite Empire. And in fact, it's almost maybe he's taking credit for the fact that the Hittite Empire was crumbling under the weight of famine and barbarian invasions. Now, it is possible that the Egyptian army raided some little border town, and he's claiming credit for that here. Maybe they grabbed a bit of territory while the grabbing was good. But right in those first two names, we make ourselves aware that in the exact same document, in the exact same sentence, it can contain things that are both pretty well true and pretty much a stretch, or at least a stretch if Merneptah's taking credit for it. Then we have the Canaan section. Canaan, in general, has been defeated, and which right there is significant. Canaan was, until the previous generation, a part of Egypt, and for the Pharaoh to be plundering them like enemies tells us that the region has fallen out of Egyptian control. Uh, we know it's not completely out of their control. They're going to hold on to some southern outposts until the 1130s, but... How much has it fallen out of control? I mean, it's clearly now more in control than it was a minute ago. We don't know. But we know that Egyptian control is slipping. Ashkelon, Gezer, and Yanoam are cities in the region. Quite possibly the only cities that the army actually visited on this expedition. And then we get to the big word, Israel. The first confirmed, recorded use of the word Israel in history. And it features Israel being laid waste and having no further seed. There are some who dispute that this is, in fact, our Israel. But they're pretty generally regarded as reaching for ideological reasons. The first interesting feature here is one that is invisible in English. Egyptian writing, something like cuneiform writing, has a system of determinatives, which are things that get written next to a noun to describe what the noun is. So next to a man's name, there would be a little sign for man. Next to a king's name, there would be a little sign for king. And next to an enemy's name, well, they've got a sign for enemy. You better believe it. Now, for a city or a country of settled agricultural peoples, there's a certain determinative sign. And for nomadic peoples, or general culture groups, there's another sign. And it's this latter that's used to describe Israel, while the former is used to describe the Canaanite cities. Now this tells us, at a minimum, with very little dispute possible, that there was some sort of tribe around the year 1207 BCE called Israel, which was not settled in villages, or at least not primarily settled, and instead primarily mobile, living in tents and moving from place to place with animals. Now this one reference does nothing at all to discuss their theology or lifestyle or inner structure. Did they worship Canaanite gods or Yahweh? Was it a coalition of 12 tribes or one tribe? All that sort of thing. But if we take one more step from this, we can see that they were significant enough to be listed as enemies of the Pharaoh in this listing. Now, there were dozens of towns and tribes that existed in Canaan that Pharaoh could have mentioned. He lists three cities and one tribal people. 
The three cities could have been listed because they were significant enemies, or because they were significant sources of plunder. A nomadic people, however, is not going to be a significant source of plunder, and must only have been a significant enemy for one reason or another. Another clue of the significance is that the claim that they were completely wiped out and their seed was destroyed. And while it's typical hyperbole of Near Eastern royal writing, it does suggest that Merneptah really didn't like these Israel guys for whatever reason. Now, there are two potentially biblical ties here. The first is that this could give credence to the idea that the people of Israel were escaped slaves and rebels against Egypt. No one was despised or treated more harshly by the Near Eastern powers than rebels and escaped slaves. And of course, these guys are both. And because Ramses lived for so long, we're only one generation removed from the time of their escape. The second is that this may be the great counterstrike against Joshua's invasions, which drops the people of Israel from regional conquerors in Joshua to pretty universally subject peoples in Judges. Now, of course, absent the Bible, what might we think of Israel if all we had was this stela? 1207 was a time of collapsing empires and of new peoples entering the Levant. Our natural expectation would be that here is yet another new entrant to the region, maybe from the deserts or maybe from the sea. We would expect that they were expanding into regions formerly held by Egypt in Canaan, but not so solidly held on to at least, not until Merneptah had decided to go up and hold on to them a little bit longer. We would not necessarily get much of the most interesting and controversial parts of the biblical narrative. It doesn't even contradict the literal biblical dating, which puts the Exodus about 1447 BCE, because an attack of the people of Israel during the time of Judges is kind of consistent with Judges in general, though other things argue pretty conclusively against that literal early timeline. Anyway, we're going a bit long. I thought Joshua would be episode two of this Israel series, but it looks like we won't even get to him until episode six. But now I can really say, for those excited for some genocide, get your crusading boots on. And join us next time, where we will open with the Battle of Jericho and look at whether or not Joshua was a real person, whether Canaan was conquered, and one of the most controversial sections in all of Scripture among both the faithful and the skeptical. Thank you for listening.